so good to see you and to be able to open up God's Word with you. You know, if it wasn't for Jesus and, and the Word of God, we would have no hope. And so, praise God that we get to come to the Word of God this morning in the midst of our lives, in the midst of all that we have experienced this week, and all that we are anticipating in the future. We're talking today about Jesus blessing children and blessing childlike faith. Now, children are not always seen as a blessing, though. And they're not always thought of in, in such kind terms. Sometimes kids are, are treated or thought of as unwelcome or unwanted. Think about it with me for a moment. A baby is crying in a restaurant or even in church. Stare and glare. A child is throwing a temper tantrum in a store. Keep staring and glaring. This time at their parents. Can't they control their kids? Have more than a couple kids? What were you thinking? You don't know how many times we've been asked if we know where babies come from, what we were thinking, and and several other rather insensitive things. Pregnant and don't want to be? Abort. Have more important things to do in life? Neglect. A distraction, a liability, a burden. That's sometimes how kids are treated. Not as a blessing, not as a gift, not of high value, not of high worth. And to many, a distraction, to many, a liability, a burden, certainly not a blessing. That is the way some people think. Times have changed, but not that much. The Bible tells us that children are a gift from God and that they are a blessing. But what do we think of them when they disobey or act disrespectfully or misbehave or rebel? What does Jesus think of kids? And, and by the way, what does childlike faith look like then? That's what we're going to see today in Matthew 19, 13 through 15. So take your Bibles and turn to those verses, and please stand with me to read God's Word. Matthew 19, and we'll be reading verses 13 through 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Let's pray. Lord God, we we come today needy people as we come every day. Lord, we, we need you desperately. We cannot live without you. And we need your word. We need truth to counteract the lies that we often believe and are often faced with. And Lord, we ask for, for understanding. We ask for wisdom. We ask for 
you to open our eyes, the, the, the eyes of our hearts, that we would understand your word today and that we would grasp it more fully and that we would have your grace to obey what you reveal. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. It's quite simple. Jesus blesses children and he blesses childlike faith. But in these verses that I just read, you might have um, felt a bit frustrated and and thought you were viewing something beautiful all at the same time because these verses really are frustrating and beautiful at the same time. They're frustrating because Christ's disciples turn away humble parents who come to him in childlike faith. And it's beautiful because Jesus corrects the disciples and gives the parents what they ask for. Lovingly taking the children into his arms and blessing those kids. So the misguided disciples are redirected in the right direction and relatively helpless children are blessed. They're embraced. Now, if you have been following our journey through Matthew, and it has been quite a journey, this is now, I believe, the 122nd message we've seen in this, in this gospel, and, and each one really stands by itself. But if you've been going along with us, you might be tempted to ask at this point, now, didn't we go through these verses a few weeks ago? And how come we're, we're going back through those verses? Well, let me remind you of this. Several weeks ago, yes, I did highlight these verses as part of a look back over Matthew chapter 18, all of Matthew chapter 18, and then into chapter 19. I did do that. But I only pointed out one aspect of this passage about how the parents brought their kids to Jesus. How, and I called that courageous, that they, in the face of cultural tradition, breaking tradition by not going to their rabbi and asking his blessing, but taking the kids to Jesus. Someone who didn't have an official position in that culture at that time. But there is so much more going on here than that. And so I want to point those things out. Two things, actually, that are are going on simultaneously in these verses. That Jesus, in real time, is showing how valuable children are. And at the same time, he is saying something about faith in him. What it means to to believe. Children were coming to Jesus. They were being brought to Jesus led by someone who had their best interest in mind. And Jesus uses this opportunity once again to show people how they must come to him by faith. That's the, the big thing that he's showing. But, but you see that Jesus values children, quite practically. What I believe that God wants you to see here today in these verses is that Jesus blesses children and childlike faith for a reason. It is so that we, in turn, would bless children and also come to Christ in childlike faith. So there are two things going on. One that has a a practical concern here where we live every day and one that has a practical concern here where we live and also out into eternity, the idea of coming to faith in Christ. It is personal. 
It is biblical. It is important stuff. Now, before we launch in, I'll, let me just say, you might be a child today, and you might hear some things about children that make you sad because, because people treated kids uh, not as good as they do today uh, back then. They, they, they weren't, kids weren't treated as well. Now, you, you may also feel like a child. You're not a child anymore, but you feel like a child, or you feel like people are always treating you like a child. Maybe you feel like kids back then did, and, maybe, and now are tempted to feel insignificant, or forgotten, or alone, or without power. And let me just say, you can be encouraged today, because God has you in a good spot, if that's you. He has you in a humble spot. He has you in a dependent spot. He has you in a spot where, where all you can do is trust him. I want you to see and grasp five statements based on the truth that Jesus blesses children and childlike faith so that we would in turn bless children and come to Christ in childlike faith. Five statements that are based on that truth. First statement. Humble faith in Christ is good. Humble faith in Christ is really good. Look with me at verse 13. Then children were brought to him, to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The, the, the construction of the sentence basically indicates they were continually coming to Jesus with their children. They were continually bringing their kids to Jesus to be blessed. I know it's easy to picture just one static instance where people are just walking up to Jesus with their kids. But picture uh, a per- uh, maybe a period of time during a day when more and more people keep coming to Jesus with their children. And as they're doing this, the disciples are setting up roadblocks and saying, go home. <laughs> we don't want none of that. Now, they were bringing their kids to Jesus to be blessed because they wanted Jesus to bless their children. And we presume that these were parents bringing their kids to Jesus. And they are reflecting humble faith in Christ. You don't need to go back very far in Matthew to to see what humble faith in Christ looks like. Just go to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus sat down on the mountain and his disciples came to him, And he opened his mouth and he taught them. Here's what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know they have no resources before God, no way to get themselves to God, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn. Those who mourn over their sin. Those who mourn over their lostness. Those who mourn over their their wicked soul. They're going to be comforted. And blessed are the meek, those that don't run roughshod over everyone thinking they're in control, they're going to inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They don't have what they need and they know they can only get it from God. They're going to be satisfied. Jesus gave a picture here of what it looks like to be humble in God's sight and, and the parents that are bringing to Jesus the people that are bringing kids to Jesus are, are showing that humble faith in Christ 
the disciples turned them away. They sternly told them, you know, get lost, stay away, keep out, you know, skid and skedaddle, you're not welcome. And how far from Jesus and gospel truth is that? How unhumble is that? How arrogant is that? It's like a a rude waiter in a restaurant who doesn't treat customers like the owner wants him to. The humble faith in Christ is good. And because it is good, teach the simple gospel. Teach the simple gospel. This passage, while, while the word gospel is not here, it is all about the simple gospel of coming to Jesus. Verse 14, it said, Jesus said, but Jesus said. They're, they're turning the people away, and Jesus says, well, it's significant that Jesus is named here. Of course, it was him talking. But, but it didn't say Christ said. It didn't say he said. But Jesus said. Jesus' name means God saves. Matthew 1, 22 and 23. You shall call his name Jesus, for it is him who will save his people from their sins. His name means God saves. And he wants people simply and humbly to come to him. Now, Jesus had already made the humble like a child point early in chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You remember that? They're having this competition, this sibling rivalry in the family of God, and, and he calls to them, himself a child, and he puts them in, him in the midst of them and says, you've got to turn, you've got to be changed and become like children, or you're never getting in to heaven. You humble yourself like this child, you'll be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You won't even be thinking about great. We've got to teach the simple gospel of humble faith in Christ. Here he drives home that point. You know, back in 18, in chapter 18, he was speaking to the disciples. Now he's bringing the same point home to a larger crowd. And those bringing the children seem to get the idea because they were coming simply to Jesus. But the message of the gospel, of the simple gospel of faith in Christ, is very simple. And we should never make it complicated to the point where children or others that find things difficult to understand can't get it. It is simple. It is, hey, we are unable to do anything, spiritually speaking, because of our sin. We are, we are out of control in sin and we are powerless over our sin. We're powerless over our sin. Outside of Christ, we are, sin is our master. And we are responsible for our sin. We can't blame anyone else for our sin. And we need a Savior from our sin. Enter Jesus, the sovereign Savior. That's a big emphasis that we do well to latch on to when we evangelize, when we share our faith in Christ, when we disciple people in Christ. We need to keep that at the forefront. That we are unable due to our sin. That we are powerless over it. That we are responsible for it though. And that Jesus is the only answer. The gospel. Good news. For all of life. Not just getting saved and then tucking that back in the drawer and saying, well, let's just get on with life. But all of life. Every moment. It's got to be in the air you breathe. On a daily basis.
gospel is good news that you can be saved from your sin and its ultimate penalty. And if you understand it and believe it, you love it. You, if you love the gospel, you, you never tire of hearing the gospel. It's the best news you'll ever hear. It gives you the ability to know God and to escape sin's bondage. And you escape its ultimate penalty, that of eternal separation and eternal death. And there are essential points to this, this gospel message. It's that God created and owns everything, including you. No one's over God. And He is perfectly holy. And He requires your perfect obedience to, to His law. But you have broken His law because of your sin. And, and you're going to pay the eternal penalty for your sin. And you can't save yourself by your good works. No amount of trying will. And so Jesus Christ came to earth as both God and sinless man and he demonstrated his love by dying on a cross to pay sin's penalty. It's as simple as that. And Christ rose from the grave and is alive today. Therefore, you must obey that simple truth. You must repent of all that dishonors God. You must believe in Christ as Lord and Savior and be willing to follow after him. That, it's as simple as that. Now, only in Christ can you receive God's best blessing. And I hope that that's the gospel that you're clinging to today. I hope that that's the message of your life. I hope that that's the gospel that you received and are, are handing out to others. But according to one author, not everyone who says they believe the gospel actually does believe the gospel. There's a new book out called The Jesus Survey, and it, it, it's, the subtitle is What Christian Teens Really Believe and Why. It's written by a former youth pastor and, and an author named Mike Napa, and he examines the finding of a survey of, of 845 Christian teens. And he said that among these kids, 10% of them have decided that the Bible can't be trusted, that what the Bible says about Jesus can't be trusted. And 60% of them are either uncertain or unsettled or confused about whether or not the Bible can be trusted. So you've got 70% of so-called Christian teenagers who are saying, we don't get it. We don't believe it. And he raised several possibilities of, of why this might be so. And there's the obvious ones. You know, re, a religiously antagonistic culture or society. Well, sure, that would, that would really maybe uh, turn people a certain way. Or the increasing attacks in the media on the Christian faith. Sure, there are hit TV shows that are portraying people who believe the Bible as nutty and ignorant and, and bigoted and all that. There are anti-Bible propaganda books. That might, that might play into the picture. There's Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. There's Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus. And there's was Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great. Uh, they've sold millions and millions of copies. So maybe that has a part in it. I love their bottom line. He said, you know, you can, you can go outside and complain all you want if you want. But that's going to fall short. Could it be that the next generation's doubts about Christianity's key doctrines can't solely be the result of popular culture? 
In fact, one professor of youth and church and culture says part of the reason is a watered-down gospel that they've received in church. Perhaps most young people practice moral therapeutic deism not because they reject Christianity but because this is the only Christianity they know. The survey found out that two out of five Christian students indicate confidence in Jesus' exclusive saving work. Only two out of five say that Jesus is the only way to be saved. One out of three don't believe he is the only way to heaven. Napa says, realistically, an enormous error in basic Christian truth like this wouldn't be widespread in our youth groups if adult Christians in our churches weren't also embracing and promoting the fallacy. He says, if the things they're saying about Christ reflect what they actually believe about Christ, then according to the Jesus survey at least, three-fourths of them, 74%, are actually spreading untruth about Jesus to their friends, neighbors, co-workers, and more. The sad fact, he concludes, is Christian teenagers are spreading the gospel that we taught them. Humble faith in Christ is good. We must... We must return to teaching and living the simple, accurate, biblical gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen, and coming again. Second, thing that is so clear in terms of what Jesus does is that he loves and values and cares for children. He loves and values and cares for children. He took time for the kids he didn't push them away he, he, he told his disciples no you're wrong now Matthew refers to children with, with regard to the kingdom and, with, and to praise several times in Matthew in the gospel here Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25 He's praying to the, Jesus praying to the Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then in chapter 18, where we see that he brought that child before them. And then here in chapter 19. And then over in chapter 21, in verse 15. This is the... the picture of Jesus coming into Jerusalem the triumphal entry and then he comes in and basically is cleansing the temple he overturns the tables of the money changers and says this my house shall be called a house of prayer you've made it a den of robbers and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them and then it says in verse 15 but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, O Lord, they're crying out. They were indignant and they said, did you hear what these are saying? And he said, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. Jesus loves, values, and cares about kids. Verse 13, let's go back through that again. Then children were brought to him. Little children the Greek word used here are, are word, is a word that is used for kids that are basically newborn babies and could stretch all the way up to age 12, actually. So maybe as they were being brought, some were being walked, some were being carried. 
Luke's gospel, Luke 18, says that even infants were being brought to Jesus. So even as young as infants were being brought. And he laid his hands on them. He took them in his arms and he blessed them. That's what verse 15 tells us. He, he laid his hands on them and went away. Verse 13, they wanted, they wanted him to lay his hands on them and pray. So the idea is this. The laying on of hands and a, a going along with prayer, accompanied by prayer, was a typical Jewish blessing. It was asking God for his favor to rest upon someone. You, you see it in Genesis where, where Israel is blessing his sons. One rabbinic tradition describes the custom of bringing a 13-year-old boy to the elders in Jerusalem at festival time. And why? To bless him and pray for him that he may be worthy to study the Torah and engage in good deeds. There's a direction to the blessing. It was common for the Jews to bring their kids to godly men to give their blessings and prayers. On a child's first birthday, it was common practice to take the child to the synagogue to be blessed by the rabbi. They were asking God's blessing. Remember Israel, his eyes were dim with age and he laid his hands on the, on the heads of Ephraim and Manasseh and he blessed them and he prayed for them. And these blessings were to declare the benefits of the inheritance and they were to give something to the one being blessed. So it was natural for parents who were blessed by Jesus to want their kids blessed by him too. It's, it's, a, it's an obvious thing. It's like Christian parents today who say, I want to bring my kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as Ephesians 6.4 tells me. I love Jesus. I want my kids to know him too. And you, you bend the, the influences Jesus way but the disciples they were acting according to worldly assumptions it was assumed in that day that children were not as valuable as adults they were not important enough to take up Jesus' time some commentators think that well the reason they were upset is because it was keeping them from the journey to Jerusalem I don't think so remember what was going to happen there they, they thought that, that the kids were not important enough to take up his time. Maybe if they were dressed in, in beautiful robes and wore gold rings and were bigger and older, they might have stopped. Children in the ancient world were only valued for what they could benefit the family by. Maybe it was enhancing the workforce Maybe it was adding to the defensive power. Maybe it was guaranteeing the future glory of the house. But you were valued for what you brought to the table, quite literally. Some cultures, babies and young children were left out to die. To weed out cripples and unfit. Often trying to weed out weak females. It was a sad commentary on human depravity. The Jews, however were different, not because of their inherent goodness, but because of the goodness of God in speaking His Word to them. And in His Word, He said, Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a, is a heritage from the Lord. So the Jews saw their kids as a blessing and a gift from God. Because that's what Jesus, that's what God said they were. 
Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, told of the joy and the thankfulness of parents receiving and bringing up children. But there was also a kind of a harsh reality to his, to his writing because what he emphasized most was the necessity for children to be submissive and obedient to their parents, which, of course, the Bible teaches. But, but it was, in Josephus' writings, it was so that they would get his blessing. So do it to get the blessing. In, in, though, in Old Testament times, rebellious children, you may remember, were stoned to death. A harsh reality. In first century Judaism, children perished. They were cherished as gifts from God, but they weren't consulted as to their opinion like we do today. Sometimes some parents treat their kids as their closest confidants. And I'm not saying that's bad or to ask kids' opinion is not bad, but in that day, they were not consulted, but they were cherished. Their opinion was not taken into consideration. So you can understand to a degree why the disciples would say, no, not today. Take the kids back. They were of no account in that culture. They were of no status. So adopting a similar sentiment, the disciples rebuked those who brought them. What was the parents' crime? They were doing, they were asking for basically what they had already seen and heard. They had seen the works of God in operation through Jesus in living color and they had heard the word of God from Jesus' lips. They wanted to see the works of God and hear the word of God. They wanted him to touch them, the works of God, and then pray for them, the word of God. They were wanting something good for their kids. But the disciples saw this as a nuisance, as an interruption. Not worthy, too insignificant. So the disciples tried to limit Jesus' reach, restrict exposure to him. But what we see very clearly is that Jesus values and loves and cares for kids. The obvious response is, we should do the same. We need to love and value and care for children. It's clear that he didn't think of them as intrusions or non-viable members of the community. One of his most powerful living object lessons was children. What do children need? Well, they need food and shelter and clothing, of course. But what else do they need? Spiritual food and shelter and covering and blessing. They need to be nurtured in the things of the faith and continually invited and even included. That's why I'm a proponent of including them in gatherings. Not all the time, but, but bringing them in and feeling like they're part of things. People get it. If you're not invited somewhere, if you don't get the invitation What do you assume? They don't like me. They don't assume, oh, they wanted me to go to another party that was better. Kids need to be nurtured in the faith and continually invited and included in in our worship, in our discipleship, in our evangelism. There's a reason, because it's not all information transfer. It's heart-level relationships. It's seeing and hearing and touching and feeling and experiencing. The king stooped to impart his blessing on children by laying his hands on them. It's a great model for us to love and value and care for children. He blessed them. Jesus loves kids. 
Third statement. Third statement. Jesus is opposed to anyone who would keep children from coming to him. Verse 14. Jesus said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. It's a, it's a two-part command. Let them come and stop keeping them from coming. It shows how important this is to Jesus. Permit them. Basically, leave them alone. Do not hinder them. Quit forbidding them. Quit. Stop doing what you're doing, he's saying. Cut it out. Stop trying to be God's bouncers. Grant them access. Give them free pass. Let them in the door. However you want to say it. Notice Jesus says, stop keeping them from coming to me. He's basically saying, stop keeping them from coming to God. Don't keep them from God. To say me was, was synonymous with saying God for Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, a parallel passage, we, we notice Jesus' response is pointed out. It says that he saw what happened when they were rebuking them and was indignant. Indignant. Uh, the idea of being upset. It has the, a, a kind of a root idea of being grieved. Well, they were going against what he wanted, so yes, he was upset. He was grieved. By blessing the children, Jesus shows he is interested in everyone. No one is excluded. The disciples, who think that Jesus is too busy to devote time to children, are rebuked. And once again, they have to learn what the nature of the kingdom is. Once again, they've got to you know, stay after school and, and do their homework again. They have to retake the test. They, didn't, they, they failed that one. Jesus rebuked the rebukers. He's the defender of the defenseless. He, he's the father to the fatherless. He is the bodyguard of those being bullied. I remember when I was in elementary school, there was a kid named Kent Smith. And he was bigger than me, stronger than me, and meaner than me. I wasn't very mean as a kid. He picked on me all the time. And I remember this one day, he was picking on me and beating me up, and my, my buddy Joe Gonzalez defended me. He was my bodyguard. He, he defended the defense. He was opposed to the bully. That's Jesus, opposed to, to the bully. He is opposed to anyone who would keep children from coming to him. The point for us is clear don't do it, don't hinder kids. You say, well, I would never hinder kids. How do you hinder kids? Let's do a little quick uh, tutorial on how to hinder your kids, okay? How to hinder children from coming to Jesus. What might you do if you want to hinder kids from coming to Jesus? Well, it's the opposite of what we should do, of course, but how about this? Rebuke them publicly. Rebuke them publicly. Shame them in front of a bunch of people. Maybe that would, would help. Or, or miss opportunities to shepherd their hearts in the way of the Lord. Or neglect to teach them God's word on a regular basis. And don't pray with them or for them if you want to hinder them. And of course, neglect their Christian education. That, that's the obvious point. But then if you really want to hinder them, delegate it to the church. Not so obvious, but very common. And ride them hard. 
pressure them all the time according to what you want them to be. And give them no guidance on that. Just tell them what you want them to be, but don't tell them how. Try to make them be what you want them to be rather than encouraging their God-given gifts. Then you will hinder your kids. Proverbs 22.6. It's a proverb, not a promise, but here's what it says. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The idea is that each child has a bent. Of course, every child has a bent towards sin, but also they have God-given callings and giftings and, and direction, and we are to cooperate with God according to who he made our children to be. That's the meaning behind Proverbs 22.6. It's not, hey, if they pray a prayer when they're five, they'll always repent and come back at the end of time even if they, even if they rebel. That's not a part of that at all. But if you want to hinder your kids, just don't cooperate with God according to who your child is. Try to make them be something they're not. Now I realize sometimes our kids might choose to do something good that we wouldn't really want them to do because we want them to do something that we think is better. Well, let me just put it this way. If your kid wants to be a rodeo clown for Jesus, it is your duty to encourage that. If he wants to play cowbell in a band or do whatever for Jesus, it is your duty to, to bless that. It's your duty to encourage him to follow the Lord's leading Anything that is good and right and true, it is our responsibility to, to lead them in that way. Let me give you a few more ways to hinder kids. Uh, frown upon it when young kids make noise or interrupt your time with God. Because remember, it's all about you. And tell them that God is going to get them if and when they sin. If you want to hinder them from coming to Christ. Act like they are in the way at home and church. You'll hinder them. Use spiritual things as punishment. Oh, and keep unforgiveness on the back burner in, in, in a few of your uh, carefully picked relationships so they can see what it means not to forgive on a, on a daily basis. Stay unreconciled with a few fellow believers so, that, so you'll be able to hinder your kids from coming to Christ. Do these things and others like them and you'll be sure to hinder their progress spiritually. Do the opposite, you'll be loving their souls. Make room for kids in your heart. Make room for kids. Remember, we all were one once. Don't stumble a child. Point them to the Savior. You see, we need God's reminders a lot of times, like a note pinned to our shirt from, you know, when you pin the note to the kid's shirt when they're going to school, you know. We need, the the disciples had to get that note pinned to their shirt, to their toga or whatever, to their tunic. Jesus rebuked them. You know, 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. He was opposed to his disciples here because they were proud and not humble. You ever been rebuked by Jesus? You ever been rebuked by the word of God? Does it sting like a bee sting? Like a stub toe? Tripping over a... Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Have you read the word of God and been laid low in the dust? Good. That's how it works. Being convicted by the Holy Spirit? Good, that means he's in you. God give you a fresh look of, at your own sinfulness? Wonderful. I turn to him. 
Don't hinder kids. Number four. Fourth statement. Jesus blesses the childlike faith of those who bring children to him. Verse 15. He took them in his arms and he blessed them. He was blessing them and he was blessing the faith of the bringers. Those brought and those that were bringing. Uninfluenced by his disciples, he, he gave the parents what they asked for. It's like Jesus' make-a-wish foundation. You want this? It's good. I'm going to give it to you. Go back to verse 15, 13, though. Let's remember why they wanted the kids to come. Why they wanted to bring the kids to Jesus. Kids were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them, literally touch them. Interesting word. It has it as it, it, at its root the idea of lighting something or igniting something. You know, this weekend being Memorial Day, there's a lot of igniting of barbecues, that will, grills that will happen and things like that. We've got a big pig roasting outside here, right? And we ignited the, the fire under it. Well, the idea of touching is the idea of igniting something. It's the idea of some power coming forth. Well, think about it. Why do they want Jesus to touch them? Because they knew that God's power was in him and flowed through him. God's power was thought to be in Jesus' touch. It was like the Midas touch. You know, everything turns to gold. Well, the Jesus touch. Everything, Jesus touches you and there's blessing. Jesus blesses the childlike faith of those who bring their children to him. Therefore, do it. Bring kids to Jesus. Lead kids to Jesus. There's no law against leading kids to Christ. He welcomes them. Now, Jesus did not stipulate exactly how you are to do it, but the message is quite clear uh, elsewhere in Scripture. He wants you to bring your kids to him. Other places in Scripture show us how. And it's a daily process in, in community with other believers of teaching our children to worship God and love Jesus through God's word and prayer and fellowship. Think of Timothy. Paul's writing to Timothy. He says, you know, from childhood, you have known the sacred writings that are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, which is in Christ. His mom and his grandma taught him the word of God. I know that a lot of parents are are afraid that they might warp their kids. Let me just set your heart at ease. Yes, you did. And yes, you are. Yes, you are warping them. But they came warped. Well, they came with the propensity to warp. It just happens. And just deal with that major warpage going on and yeah sometimes if they have a warped or crooked view it's because we taught it yes sometimes it's just the the hereditary sin that gets placed that's that's kind of there already but you know what's interesting as we are becoming more christ-like if if you're a christian you're becoming more christ-like as god works in you and through you as you expose yourself to the word of god and prayer and fellowship and and outreach and things like that doing things christians do forgiveness and all that and as you're doing that you're being changed and your kids are watching you change before their very eyes in fact here's an interesting thing we watch our kids grow before us but they also watch us grow in christ-likeness So that sanctification process, that holiness process that God is bringing about is being observed by little eyes that take everything in. They they see when you change. You're playing catch with your kids every day. Baseball season. 
playing catch with your kids. They're catching what you're doing, what you're saying, positively and negatively, yes, but they're catching the good things too. You know, true family worship, uh, true family devotions is where, where people take time for kids in their households to, to pay attention to God worshipfully through God's word and prayer. And, and when that is happening, there's a process taking place that you're saying to your kids, you know what? You're not marginal to Christ. You're not marginal to the church. You're not marginal in this home. We're here together, and this is important to us because this is what our life is based upon. You know, be, kids belong in worship in the home with their parents, and they belong in worship at church with their parents and other godly people. I want other godly people to teach my kids and, and, and support the teaching that I'm doing at home. That's the way God intended. It's not my job all, all, to, all alone. It's my job primarily, but it's, it's, it's the body of Christ together teaching all who come. We need to lead kids to Christ any way we can. Fifth statement, fifth and last statement. Jesus expects, enables, and encourages childlike faith in him. Verse 14, go back to that. Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he wasn't saying that all kids are going to be going to heaven. That's not true. Kids are not auto-saved. It's all who of any age come to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those who will admit their 100% need for him, they're saved. They'll get saved. So to such, notice that it says not these. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these, not the kingdom belongs to these. Jesus expects, enables, and encourages childlike faith in him. Therefore, you have got to make sure where you stand with Jesus. See, now it's not just about what the parents did back then. It's not just about what the kids uh, got from Jesus. Now it's about you and me. Now it's about our heart. Now it's right here, right now, today. We've got to make sure where we stand with Jesus. Because Jesus said, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. You've got to ask the question, am I one of those to such? Note the emphasis that Jesus places on the character of those who enter the kingdom. Childlike trust, humility, essential for getting in. Faith and humility in contrast to Israel's unbelief and blindness. Here's God, the creator, the sustainer, the judge, and the sovereign king of the universe. We will answer to him. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. The end of 1 Corinthians, excuse me. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. The Bible tells us the just shall live by faith, not just start off by faith, but go all the way through from start to finish. Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. Are you his child by faith? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? And I'm wearing a gold watch today I don't usually wear. It's a very nice gold watch. It's a very expensive gold watch. It was given to me by my parents, and I was asked recently by them, how come, you never, how come you wear that cheap plastic watch? You never wear the gold one we gave you. I'm like, well, it's just not my style. I don't wear a lot of bling. But I wore it today. I put it on. But there's a problem. The battery's dead. It's just a decoration. It's just a sermon illustration, actually. That's all it is. A nice, expensive gold one. If you're going to have one, might as well make it a good one, right? The thing is, is that I'm wearing this gold watch and it doesn't have a battery and so it's only good for show. You're here today and you're like, hey, I go to Grace Church of Orange. 
I've been going here for a long time, or I've been going here for a little time, but I, I'm, I, you know. So, I love you. Great. Keep coming. But do you know Jesus? Do you know, is, is there a battery in the watch? Is there, is there, is there a pulse? Are you spiritually alive? Or do you come here every day, every week, and you're just like, yeah, yeah, that's really cool stuff for someone else. It's interesting that at the very end of verse 15, what do we read? He went away. He went away. He went on. He kept going. Look at the end of of, of verse 15. He went away. He moved on. He He went, where did he go? He went nearer to Jerusalem where he would go closer to the cross that he came to die on and to embrace. The final comment by Matthew, and he went away, he went on from there. That brings contrast, big contrast between Jesus, the humble blesser of children, and the looming shadow of the cross on which he would die. How could such a man be found guilty of death? Maybe Jesus, maybe, maybe as Matthew was was writing, he wanted us to see the gentle sacrificial lamb of Isaiah 53 being led toward the slaughter. Because the child of Isaiah is the king on whose shoulders everything rests. The humble one of Philippians 2 is the one exalted to the highest place, at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Come to Jesus. And keep coming. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in spite of our sin, no matter what, you are faithful to all your promises. And Lord God, we thank you that that you love us so much. It's like you put billboards up all along the path. And, and when we feel insignificant, when we've been turned away, you say, I've got your back. I love you. I love you. I love you. Don't ever forget. Lord God, may may we never forget. May we have your grace to never forget that you love us so much. Thank you, Lord, that you bless children and that we could do the same. And thank you, Lord, that you have given childlike faith to so many of us. And we pray, Lord, that for those who, who still do not yet believe, Lord, that you would open their hearts by your grace. We pray in Christ's name, amen.